Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. In Mark 15, 34, Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God actually forsake Jesus? And if so, what's the answer to Jesus' question? Why? Why did God forsake him? And if you think, well, the answer is obvious. Uh, If it's so obvious, then why did Jesus ask the question? Was Jesus confused? I mean, Jesus knew he had to drink this cup, right? He knew that all along. He agonized about it in Gethsemane. So why is he asking this question? Did Jesus really believe that the Father had forsaken him? And if so, what does forsaken actually mean? In what sense was he forsaken? Was there some sort of rift in the Trinity? And how long did the forsaking last? I made an argument in the Q&A in the last message that that God never did forsake Jesus. It's just how he felt. Um, Now, what you make of that statement will depend on your definition of the word forsake. And we had a little bit of a debate about it. If your definition of forsaking is that God turned his face away from Jesus, withdrew his tenderness, cut off his access to fellowship with him, and withheld all comfort and strengthening and all that, and punished Jesus as if he were furiously angry with him, if you say, if you, if you, if you take all that and say, well, that's forsaking, that's what forsaking means, then yes, God forsook Jesus, because all that happened. But there are some other things that God didn't do that I think would also fall under forsaking. Uh, God did not abandon Jesus to the grave, right? In Acts 2.30, David, it says, uh, Peter's preaching in in the day of Pentecost. He says, David was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised that he would place one of his, his descendants on the throne. And he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not forsaken. Same word that Jesus used on the cross. He was not forsaken to the grave. So he wasn't forsaken in that sense, right? Secondly, the Father didn't abandon Jesus in the sense of rejecting him, right? God didn't reject Jesus. He accepted Jesus' sacrifice and was pleased by it. Scripture is very clear with that. Third, God was not angry with Jesus. Now, he did treat Jesus as if he were angry with him. He did pour out the the results of his wrath. God was angry with all of mankind, and he poured out the consequences of his wrath on Jesus as if he were... He treated Jesus as if he were angry with him. But nowhere does the Bible say that God was emotionally angry with his son. In fact, it says just the opposite. He was pleased with with his son, and I would suggest never more pleased than when Jesus was offering his life, giving up his own life to reconcile the world to God. Fourth, God never became indifferent to Jesus' cries. There was never a moment when God heard Jesus crying out and says, I don't care. I don't care. That means nothing to me. That didn't happen. God cared, right? Deeply. We know he cared. He didn't let Jesus feel the sensation of being cared for, right? He didn't offer any expression of that care while Jesus was on the cross. But the Father did most definitely care. So, if you agree with those two lists that I just gave, the things that God did do and the things that God didn't do, then you and I are on the same page, regardless of how we describe it, what terminology we use to describe it. 
You might refer to all that as God temporarily forsook Jesus. And I might describe the exact same thing by saying, well, God never forsook him. He never abandoned him at all, but he did allow Jesus to feel abandoned or forsaken. But regardless of, of what the wording we would use, um, we would be in agreement on what actually happened. However, I do believe there's a bit of a danger in, use, in describing it the first way, to say God temporarily abandoned Jesus. Here's why. To say God temporarily forsook Jesus might give the impression that whenever times are hard, that means God has abandoned you temporarily, and when things are smooth, God is back. That's how many interpreters interpret Psalm 22, which is what Jesus quoted in verse 1. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then in verse 23 of the same psalm, he says, You who fear the Lord, praise him, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of his afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. And the interpreters see that and say, Well, obviously, by verse 23, his problems had gone away. Right? Verse 1, he's having a hard time. He cries out to God. God t rescues him from that problem. The problem is gone, and now he praises God in verse 23 and says, Ah, finally you heard my prayer. Now you're back. But <clears throat> when God rescued the psalmist and answered his prayers, um, it doesn't say he unabandoned him. And there's, there's nothing in the psalm, I think, that would lead us to think that way. First of all, because there's nothing that indicates the circumstances of the psalmist changed from section 1 of the psalm to section 2. Secondly, the, I think the argument fails because you can tell just from verse 1 of the psalm that the speaker doesn't really believe that God forsook him because he calls him my God. And I, I got into this last time. He wouldn't be able to refer to God that way if God had really forsaken him. It's a very special way to address God that implies you have a unique, special relationship with God. He has not abandoned you if you can call him my God. And beyond that, that whole way of looking at suffering contradicts what I believe the rest of the Bible teaches about how to interpret hardship. That way that those interpreters are interpreting Psalm 22, I think is the same same mistake that Job's friends made. They, they said, oh, things aren't going well for you, Job. Obviously, God is mad at you. God has forsaken you. And then when he gets all his health back and his money back and everything comes back, ah, oh, now God is back on your side. He's unforsaken you. Uh, and those guys are rebuked by God for that philosophy. That philosophy is dead wrong. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul speaks to this directly. In verse 8, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Same word Jesus used on the cross. Not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So Paul was hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. But even while all that was going on, while it was going on, still he was not forsaken or abandoned by God. It wasn't a temporary forsaking. Uh, the whole point of it was he was never forsaken, even while it was happening. In Philippians 4, did Paul say, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything pray for relief, and then after God br brings the relief, then offer thanksgiving? No. 
He said, in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You don't wait until after God responds to be thankful. You're already thankful for whatever God's going to do, whatever he's planning on doing, before he does anything. And you're thankful for whatever he's accomplishing in, in the suffering that you're in, in the hardship that you're suffering. If you wait until after you get what you want from God to be thankful, then you're not living by faith. Right? You're living by sight. You're using God rather than trusting God. So it's wrong to assume that you're abandoned by God just because it feels like you've been abandoned. So when, when the psalmist shifts from groaning to praising, I don't think we should interpret that to mean, oh, God must have changed his circumstances. So in Psalm 22, when he makes that shift, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me at the beginning? And then he shifts to, Praise God, because he's not forsaken me. What changed wasn't his circumstances. What changed was his perspective. He went from focusing on how he felt to focusing on what he knew. He, he felt forsaken, but in his mind, he knew that he was not forsaken. Now, there would be some people would come back and say, well, maybe that was true for David when he wrote to Psalm 22. But the situation for Jesus on the cross, that's different. That's different. He really was forsaken. David wasn't forsaken, but Jesus on the cross, he was. That's different. Um, but if that's the case, wouldn't it be incredibly misleading for Jesus to quote Psalm 22 if he meant something totally different from what David meant when he wrote it? Why mislead people by quoting David and meaning something else? Now, some of the commentators argue that Jesus only quoted verse 1 of that psalm on purpose. Therefore, he didn't have the rest of the psalm in mind. All the, they say the only part of the psalm that Jesus had in mind is verse 1 or section 1 about God abandoning him, but not to the rest, the rest of the psalm, because they say if we, if we include the rest of the psalm, that would diminish Jesus' suffering, because section 2 of the psalm and section 3, those are triumphant, upbeat, sections of the psalm, and we can't have that in Jesus' mind and on the cross because that would diminish his suffering. I strongly disagree with that argument. Our job is not to interpret everything in the way that would be mean the maximum possible suffering for Jesus on the cross. Our job is just to be honest with whatever the text says and let God worry about whether Jesus suffered enough or how much Jesus suffered. And if we interpret this passage the same way we interpret all the, other, all the other times Jesus quotes the Old Testament, we would most definitely have to consider the whole context of the whole psalm, because that's the way Jesus quotes the Old Testament, consistently. Every other time in the book of Mark, when the, Jesus or Mark refer back to the Old Testament, every time, it always points, it always points to the whole context of the quotation, not just the, just the statement that's quoted. So if Jesus quoted a verse out of context here and meant it in some different way, that would be extremely out of character for both Jesus and for Mark. Jesus suffered plenty. All right? We don't have to try to make it more than, than what it says. It's not a problem for us to think that Jesus did draw some comfort from God's promises. And that there were thoughts of, of victory uh, in his mind. The reason sections 2 and 3 of Psalm 22 are triumphant and joyful is because the focus shifts from how things seem and feel to what the Bible says is true about God. That's, that's the shift, and that's why the emotions change. For Jesus to shift his attention 
from his suffering to the Father's love for him and Father's promises of resurrection and future glory, that doesn't diminish the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross any more than it would diminish it when the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. If Jesus couldn't draw comfort from counting on God's promises and looking forward to his deliverance, why would he call us to do that? If he didn't even do it, why would, why would he expect us to do it? And beyond that, we need to remember that Jesus' quotation of verse 1 isn't the only reference in the Gospels, uh, the crucifixion account, to Psalm 22. There are multiple allusions to Psalm 22. Just to, just to list some here, Mark 15, 24, it says, At the crucifixion, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. At the crucifixion, uh, Mark 15, 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Psalm 22, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. At the crucifixion, Matthew 24, uh, 27, 43, he trusts, is what the mockers say, he trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. Psalm 22, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And, and not only do you have those references, but this, just the descriptions in Psalm 22 of the physical suffering seem to be a better description of Jesus on the cross than anything that ever happened to David. There's even a reference in Psalm 22:16 about his hands and feet being pierced. Now, it's possible to translate that pinned instead of pierced, and where you can't be 100% sure, but, but still, it's, it sounds like what happened to Jesus. And the book of Hebrews connects section 2, the triumphant section 2 praise part of Psalm 22 to Jesus. Thank you for listening. We pray these principles from the Word of God are helping you find the peace of God as you draw nearer to the God of peace. Please remember to pray for this ministry, and remember that we're a crowd-funded ministry, so every gift helps. Just go to treasuringgod.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always, and set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's what the mockers were doing. So in Psalm 22.8, it says, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And that's exactly what the mockers said at the cross. In Matthew 27.43, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he wants to save him. So what they're saying is, Jesus, the reason God isn't rescuing you right now off of the cross is because God has abandoned you. God has rejected you. That's what the mockers are saying. Are we going to say, oh yeah, the mockers are right? No. No. They weren't right. And in Acts 2, Peter states that emphatically, uses the fact of the resurrection to prove that those mockers were wrong, that God never did forsake Jesus. The accusation wasn't true. God had not rejected Jesus. And we find out whom God really rejected and whom God accepted by... When God raises Jesus from the dead, but the mockers are slaughtered in 70 AD. So, not only is it a mistake to try to say that only verse 1 of Psalm 22 applied to Jesus, since that's what he quoted, um, and, and it's, the rest of it is just applies to David, not to Jesus. That's, not only is that wrong, um, but 
I would actually argue the reverse. If the psalm only applies to one party, the rest of the psalm, then it would be to Jesus and not to David. Honestly, I, I'm not really sure you can make, you can say any of Psalm 22 applied to David. It's called a Psalm of David, but it seems to me that it's a pure messianic prophecy and not a description of what David went through. When the mockers said, let God rescue him if he delights in him, are we to think that mockers said that to David? And then it just so happens that mockers at the cross said exactly the same words to Jesus? Well, that's possible, but it doesn't seem likely to me. And beyond that, think about sections 2 and 3 of the psalm. The point of section 2 of Psalm 22 is that God will deliver his, this righteous sufferer in such a way that it will stimulate praise from all believers, right? The, the congregation, you who fear the Lord, all you descendants of Israel, the great assembly, those of you who, those who fear you, uh, those who seek the Lord, that's all in section two. It's, it's all believers will praise because of the way this one man is delivered. And then in section three, he expands it out even further, not just all believers, he expands it to the whole wide world, not just to, the, not just to Israel. So in Psalm 22, 27, he says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. That's, that's way beyond David. Nothing like that ever happened with David. And this is why it's so important that we don't just think Jesus is referring only to verse 1 in Psalm 22. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired the gospel writers to allude to various different parts of Psalm 22 over and over when they described the crucifixion. And this is why it, the Holy Spirit, in his foreknowledge, even included some of the exact language of the mockers uh, at Jesus at the cross back in Psalm 22. And this is why, just in case we missed all of those hints, Jesus just comes right out and quotes Psalm 22. He wants us to interpret the cross in the light of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is the key to understanding the cross. So when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was, he was expressing how he felt. But he is also doing something else. He's also telling us, I'm the fulfillment of Psalm 22. What's happening here, up here on the cross is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. So go back to Psalm 22 and take a look, and you'll understand what I'm doing up here. That's what Jesus was saying. I'm the one who will cry out to God, and God will rescue me in such a way that to cause all believers and brothers to shout praises, and people all over the whole wide world for centuries to come in the future will turn to God and bow the knee and serve him. That's what's happening here, up here on the cross. That's what Jesus was indicating to us by quoting that psalm. He's saying, it may look to you like I'm being forsaken by God. It definitely feels that way to me. But the truth is, I know I am not forsaken. God will rescue me in a way that will bring salvation to the ends of the earth and for generations to come. That's what Psalm 22 teaches. That's what Jesus was pointing us to. And that's exactly what happened, right? And that was the point that Peter was making on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when he preached uh, to those very people who were at the cross who murdered Jesus. In Acts 2.30, he said, David was a prophet and knew that what God had promised, that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. He spoke of the resurrection of Christ, who, that, that he was not forsaken. God has raised this Jesus to life, 
And we are all witnesses of that fact. Exalted to the right hand of God. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? There's the promise. When they said that, there's the promise of the ends of the earth turning to God. Remember, this is people from all over the ends of the earth there in, in Acts 2. And now you have people from all over the ends of the earth turning to God um, because of the way Jesus died. It's all starting to be fulfilled right there in Acts 2. Peter doesn't mention Psalm 22 in that sermon, but what he said was a perfect description of the fulfillment of Psalm 22. On the cross, it looked and felt to Jesus like he was being forsaken by God. But God heard Jesus cry. He didn't close his ears. He listened to Jesus cry. He did rescue him from the grave, and he did so in a way that brought salvation to the whole world for generations to come. Thank you for listening. We pray these principles from the Word of God are helping you find the peace of God as you draw near to the God of peace. Please remember to pray for this ministry, and remember that we're a crowd-funded ministry, so every gift helps. Just go to treasuringgod.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.